You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A suitable boy, the epic novel by Vikram Seth, is no straightforward romance. Across over half a million words, Seth paints a vast and nuanced portrait of newly independent India after the end of British rule. No one can be sure of what the future will be. You will marry a boy I choose. I don't think I ever want to get married. India is a free country now. On the surface, it follows Lata, a young Hindu girl under pressure to find an appropriate husband. But Lata's coming of age also mirrors that of her country. She falls for Kabir, a Muslim, but their love is forbidden as religious violence flares following the bloody partition of India and Pakistan. We should follow our own path. Nobody ever meant anything to me till I met you. His obsession with that woman. Have you no shame at all? In this new world, a suitable boy follows four very different families as they negotiate post-Raj political freedoms and dramatic social change. Framed like that, the sheer size of this book is no longer surprising. But how could such a story ever be condensed to fit the small screen? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how do you turn India's history into a TV drama hit? My guest is the director, Meera Nair. She's just finished the unenviable task of distilling 1,400 pages into six episodes for the BBC, soon to be streamed internationally on Netflix. Raised in Delhi, she studied film at Harvard, and she's made her mark in both Hollywood and Bollywood. Her first feature film, Salam Bombay, a crime drama set among the city's street children, was Oscar and BAFTA nominated. She was the first woman director to win the Golden Lion, the highest prize at the Venice Film Festival for the jubilant monsoon wedding. And in 2012, she was awarded one of India's highest civilian honours, the Padma Bhushan. Mira Nair, welcome to The Economist Asks. A pleasure to be here and very, very happy. Thank you. Deciding to adapt a story of this breadth is such a commitment. It's, it's almost a, a marriage in itself. So when did you first decide that A Suitable Boy was a suitable TV drama? Yeah, it's a marriage to the insatiable boy, I should say, at this point, because I've spent close to three years adapting The Suitable Boy. Well, my love for it began actually the moment the book was finished by Vikram Seth back in the 90s in Delhi. I have loved it uh, as a real portrait of a time that I wished I was born in, you know, the time my parents married, 1950, and my father was one of the civil servants that was part of the building of this new India, the free India. And I wanted to be adapting it, but I thought it was too much to handle, you know, back then, 25 years ago. So I ended up conceiving and making my own smaller version, which turned out to be a monsoon wedding. But when this one started again, I thought I just had to throw my sari in the ring and I had to make sure that it was made at least by someone not from the outside. When I joined the project, the eight hours of writing had already been done by Andrew Davies. 
And I did love the distillation of it, but certainly wanted it to be less pride and prejudice and more the world that I wanted to evoke at that time to shift the balance, to include the politics. I was struck by the many marriages, really, that need to happen to make something of this scale and drama come to life. And one, as you've mentioned, is that relationship between Andrew Davis and, and Vikram Seth, the, the author, and Andrew Davis, who has been adapting great works for television, oh, you know, since even I was young. Um, but that was a really interesting choice, given that people would say, well, I trust Andrew Davis with a work of great complexity, but there are sensitivities about the fact that you are then going back to someone who, if you like, is a white vintage adapter to do a great novel about India. What's your view on that? Like I said, I came later to that party. I read these scripts and, and I was delighted by them. I think that for me, it you know, I go for the sensibility a writer would have to sculpt such a tome. And Andrew certainly has both the sensibility and the experience. Both the writer and the author managed to have a good communication, you know. When I came in, I think it was very important for me to integrate the politics in, in such a way that it reflects the India of now. The search for love, the search for who we are, the search for who we will spend our life with, those are universal searches. And therefore I knew that the series could be timely, but the politics of it is also almost remarkably timely. And that was important to me to remember that time, both the time where the Hindu and Muslim communities were so syncretic in their culture, in their song, in their language, in their in their friendships, and how that is being so sadly and, and with a targeted fashion being obliterated slowly but surely in the fabric of our Indian society and culture now. I was particularly interested in the role of language as a vector for culture in the story. We have parts in Hindi, parts in Urdu, parts in different kinds of Indian English, so integral to the work, but it's a real challenge to the adapter to keep less familiar audiences with you. Yes, it was something I insisted on and I brought to it. When I was given the drafts, it was all in English and was supposed to be in English, just like the novel is in English. But I could not make that film where you'd go to in the heartland of rural India and the father would greet you in the Queen's English, it would just be plain wrong. It would just take me out of the truth of it. And I went to both uh, Andrew and Vikram, but mostly to Vikram, to ask if I could... As he said, he thanked me for translating it back into Urdu and Hindustani and Avdi, the, the dialect uh, of that region. And we worked with great care with a, with a dialogue writer in India, Hridaylani, who did my first film, Salam Bombay, as well, to integrate those languages into the English. But I have to say I was given a strict quota, you know, by the money. And, and like it had to be this much and no more. Uh, yeah, I found that so... Uh, so not reflecting of our times and of the need of the hour. But still, since his beautiful novel was in English, so so much captured the pulse of who we are as Indians, I thought we could do the same in the screenplay, being a marriage of all these languages. And certainly the music for me is really the oxygen of my work as a filmmaker. I really worked on those ghazals, those poems that Saida Bai sings, the courtesan in the center of the story, based on the poets that she and Vikram had loved in the book. So we set those poems to song. And these are very important 
musical commentaries, as you would, about the drama of what is going on. The book's famously epic, not just in its scope, but in its size. It's nearly 600,000 words. I remember taking it on holiday to read, and I thought, well, I'll be good with this because I do German novels for fun. But this one makes Thomas Mann look quite skinny. Seth's original is about 19 parts. A lot of them then have their own subplots. How do you decide what has to go? Is it as brutal as, well, I just know what? has to go out or do you have to murder your darlings at the last minute both both you have to know and you have to carve that swath through it uh, which was done uh, mostly by andrew before my arriving but what i did was to restore certain characters that had been killed <laughs> uh, the character of mrs mahesh kapoor for instance the politician's wife she has not even been given a first name but she is like a rock foundation spiritually of this family that has been, you know, rent apart by politics of firstly of freedom, her husband being in jail for most of her life as a mother, uh, raising kids on her own, uh, keeping the family to take the blows of political life. So it was a shifting and balancing. Yes, we cut out several subplots because they had to go. We cut out also several large sections of the exposition of the land rights bill and all its legalities. So things like that. And then essentially some characters just had to go. The Nawab had two sons. Only one was critical to our plot. So the other one was never existed and so on. Those things happen. And then I have to say, because of the way I work, I cast a lot of like legendary actors opposite non-actors or people who have faced the camera for the first time. Things happen on the set, great alchemy sometimes can happen. And when I see that happening, I enhance that character's arc or that character's journey to keep the family and each character alive. This is the first primetime BBC period drama to feature an overwhelmingly Asian cast. It's about 110 Indian actors, I think. I think you've called it the crowning brown. Has that phrase returned to haunt you at all? No, I said that early on in the months when we were financing this that it will have the sweep and the magnificence of the crown, uh, except it's in brown, you know. But let me tell you, from 30 more years of making films uh, about my part of the world, for the world, uh, you never get the budget of the crown to make a suitable boy. (laughs) You get what you get. And you have to be so assured and have a team as amazing as I do, who have made films across the world for several years, especially in India, uh, that we can achieve that sweep and that entirely every moment of, Suitable Boy is shot on location in forts and crumbling palaces and old havelis and refurbished bridges. And, you know, we we did all this to create a sense of that layering of history. So we, we do that more with our experience and sensibility and taste and much less with oodles of money. That's what I meant when I said you're crowned brown. But there have been accusations, to put it bluntly, that this is a bit of window dressing on the part of the BBC, particularly when people are looking for more authenticity, who is making programmes about what. And one charge would say, look, it's a very able Indian cast, but many of the producers are white BBC veterans. We've touched on Andrew Davis already. Do you see A Suitable Boy as being a moment when clearly they've been great advances, but perhaps the next production might be staffed very differently in terms of its backstage diversity and the mix of people? Well, I certainly hope that uh, the plate of the BBC and everyone else in you know, making media in England 
would come back to re reflect the diversity of its own people. I have yearned for goodness gracious me for God knows 20 years now. And there's, it's such brilliant writing for television and it has, you know, and yet it's not there anymore. And it's not that that's not there, but the talent I know that exists, uh, you know, in the British Asian scene. In, in, you say you yearn for it. Are you suggesting goodness it. gracious me should come back? Absolutely. It should reflect, and not just as it was, but to reflect the times now. Because it's brilliant writing. It's brilliant comedy. It's, it's, it set the bar a long time ago, you know, for the outrageousness and its bravery. But I don't see that being fostered. In fact, my British friends, Asian friends, they say to me, you know, now that BBC spent its word or, or whoever spent its word on Suitable Boy, they'll say there's no room for any more, you know, for this year. That's the sort of thinking that should go away. That should absolutely go away. And, and that is unfortunately still very, I would say, entrenched. But at the same time, the way I look at A Suitable Boy is that it's amazing and brilliant that it gets to be made. It's not window dressing because it, it is 110 actors that you've never seen. It is languages that you've never heard in the depths of, you know, the Midlands sometimes. You know, it's, it's, it's bringing to you a culture and a society that is also so inextricably influenced by the hundred years that the English were in India as well. It's very important to see it from our point of view. So I don't belittle this effort of having the BBC make a suitable boy. But I am also very aware and, and take it very preciously that I am leading and directing and sculpting this banquet to be as pulsating with life as possible and to be as truthful well, that's one thing I wanted to ask you about, actually, because there's truthfulness on screen, which you could write a hundred doctoral theses about. Yeah. And then there's, does it feel real? And there's been some comment, notably the TV critic Raja Sen of Live Mint, about the accents of some of the characters in A Suitable Boy overperforming their Indianness as, as he saw it. And that made me wonder how you balance exposition in a portrayal of a historical time with patrician accents of the grand families. Course, and at the course. same time, people listening to it now and, and kind of wincing, I suppose the equivalent of listening to the Queen in 1953, it just lands very differently, doesn't it? In this day and age, people can write anything anywhere. And it's an opinion that you're supposed to you know, deal with. I personally don't engage in that sense. For me, you see, the way we spoke English then it's like cursive handwriting. We were taught to write in a certain way. If you look at the, the handwriting of convent education over the 60s and 70s, like I was raised in India, all our handwriting was almost conformed to be one thing. Woe betide you if you were a left-hander. The nuns would beat the hell out of you. You know, So, so it's the same thing with spoken English. Uh, but at the time, it was very much a refined a more pointed English, certainly in the uh, Nawabi families that we are in, in The Suitable Boy. Uh, and it is very different when you get into the hinterland of, of village India. There is hardly any English to be heard. So that is what we did in The Suitable Boy, which is a very different English than what we are used to hearing now, which is like, what happened? Why, why did you go there? You know, I mean, I didn't go there. That is how people speak now. And that's fine for you know, Indian television contemporary series that go on about today, but it is not fine for 1951 coming out of Brampur University studying Joyce and Keats, and that is how we spoke. It was with great care that we 
kept the foundation as we are, you know, not not at all trying to sound English, except for one Indian character, Arun Mehra, who insists on imagining that he's an Englishman. So he talks like that and he, you know, he <laughs> slips in and out of his English accent. That's a character. But the rest of them are speaking in English that is more refined than we hear today, but it's certainly correct of that time. Early in the series, we see the building of a Hindu temple right in front of a mosque, portrayed as a provocation to India's Muslim minority. It's been very much echoed in recent events. In early August at Ayodhya, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi set a cornerstone of a new Hindu temple at the site of a destroyed mosque. You couldn't have known the series would foreshadow the present so exactly. But what's your reaction when you hear a story like that, which, of course, we've been covering in some detail here at The Economist? I mean, yes, uh, The Suitable Boy for me remains extremely timely because what Vikram Seth does in his story is to show us, very much integrated in the story, the seeds uh, of dissension and separation that continue to be planted after Indian independence between Hindus and Muslims. And the building of the temple in front of the mosque was that provocation that he used, obviously as a reference to Babri Masjid, which had happened two years before he finished his book. And like many Indians, I also am caught up in in this civil society just standing up and not believing and not accepting the Citizen Amendment Acts, these government directives that continue to absolutely put an axe between the two communities. Uh, I really believe that the power of India is in its plurality and in its secularism and not in these divisions that are now becoming over the world actually solidified in several ways. So for me to make a suitable boy at this time uh, was very much to try to also reflect on how we have come to where we have come. And on another level, to remember, to hold a mirror to a world, despite the dissension, which had the power of the syncretic so embedded in its soul. That was how we have lived, and we, some of us continue to live, but it is something that our grandchildren may not never remember if this continues the way it is continuing. The fate of Lata, a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, who's seeking to find her life, you know, whether it be through a suitable boy or through her own voice, she is seeking to find herself in a time that the country, India, is seeking to find itself. And that tapestry, that interweaving of the political and the personal is the core of why and how I made a suitable boy. She, she's an absolutely fascinating, almost sort of Jane Austen-esque character that way. That First, you're worrying about who she's going to marry endlessly. I was a bit like Mrs. Bennet. I, yeah, I spent a long time concerned about it. And then, mm-hmm. and then you mm-hmm. actually start to see her in her sort of intellectual quest and where she sits socially. Yeah. And I think that is really the, that's the sort of magic of a suitable boy, isn't it? Yes. And then you oh, yeah, yeah, hang on a minute. <laughs> what are we going to do about the love life? Which is important, right? And, and also, you know, she asks, she asks the eternal question, Lata does, you know, is it possible to be happy without making others unhappy? So there was that propriety and the decorum of the 50s that Lata does embody. But inside herself, she has that feisty yeah. intellectual you know, of why not Joyce, you know, why not, yeah, why not Joyce, you know, why not Joyce, you know, and that is what is interesting to me, that push and pull within her, that also makes her very timely. At that point, she's been told what, what she should study and not study, doesn't it? Apparently, apparently yes. James Joyce, possibly yes. one thinks because of uh, 
sexy Molly Bloom and Ulysses might have been a bit off the agenda at the time. I suppose that that might have been the context. And that he didn't believe in punctuation oh, yes. in the way that the English literature was taught. Question, which was worse, the, the sex or the punctuation? I take the sex any day. Unpunctuated. <laughs> yes, she said. Yes, yes, yes. I understand that this will screen in India on Netflix in the, in the autumn. It's a portrait of India and of a particular time, initially designed for Britain on, on, on the BBC. How anxious are you about how it will be received back home? Because one thing's for certain, people will tell you their views, won't they, in India. People are already engaging with it. How do you think it will, will go down when it gets to a big audience? Oh, yeah, they're all illegally signing on to it and uh, they're all seeing it uh, while uh, the BBC shows it. Uh, not all, but several have. Uh, you know, that is their business is to tell us their uh, views. I really hope they enjoy it and are be you know, transported by it. But frankly, my dear, I just have to carry on. And, and you know, I've had this uh, initiation in England a little bit of, of wonderful response, actually. And now we are also the closing night of the Toronto Film Festival, where all six hours will be shown at once on oh, screen. Oh, that is a binge. That is definitely a binge to dream about. Which for me is a very beautiful thing. A lot of popcorn. Yeah, I only know how to make cinema, you know, and and... While television allows me to make the long-form cinema, it is cinema that has fueled a suitable boy. So the craft person in me is very pleased to have a suitable boy on screen for six hours and to be regarded as that long-form cinema, which will happen in September. And after that, it will open in the rest of the world, uh, except uh, USA. Um, and then that will be another chapter. But I It will get to America, American audiences in the long run, won't it? Oh, yes, yes. They are, they are bidding for it, but we haven't uh, made the arrangements yet. Two things I just can't go without mentioning. One is the renewed interest in the idea of matchmaking. Perhaps it never went away if we, we look at uh, Love Island in that kind of very semi-demi reality TV format in, in the UK. But also the series Indian Matchmaking on Netflix has been a huge hit. Why do you think the idea of arranged marriage, of the idea of the external matchmaker is so fascinating for Western audiences, so enduring. Well, I think that uh, love and marriage as an institution hasn't been spectacularly successful in the Western world either. <laughs> you know, so people are curious as to whether a deranged marriage perhaps can give, you know, have the legs that they see that it might offer. And uh, I've also been fascinated by that in terms of the concept of arranged marriage is that you don't have to be in love to marry, but you will find love as you go down that journey if you're lucky. So, yes, matchmaking has been very much a part of our uh, world for years. And I thought the show, although I've not seen much of it, it taps into that in a kind of transparent fashion. So you really see what you never see, which are the goings on behind the scenes and what people aspire for. Uh, Vikram Seth is reportedly working on A Suitable Girl, a sequel to be set in the present day. Equal opportunities for for all. It's five years uh, over the initial deadline, might yet uh, arrive. Would you like to tackle another Seth doorstopper uh, after this experience of boiling it down for such mesmeric drama on the screen? Actually not. Uh, and I told him so on the day that I signed on to A Suitable Boy. He asked me and offered me immediately A Suitable Girl. That was two years or some ago, three. And I said, my dear, I will give you three years of my life to make A Suitable Boy, but I'm not doing A Suitable Girl. Life is short, you know, and, and uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of others who would do it beautifully. 
but I have things to do and yoga to practice and uh, many things to learn. So I'll be off on my merry way. Favorite yoga position? Hishasana. I speak as a fellow addict. The headstand. Just the, the simple straight, straight up in the air with triangle arms or the other kind? Triangle arms. Uh, yeah, it's not so, it, well, it's, it's now become simple, but it takes a long time to perfect anything. Uh, and certainly the Shishasan, which is, I think it's called the queen of all poses. It teaches me to embrace disorientation, which is constantly the foundation of being a filmmaker. You've left us with a challenge there. Mira Naya, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Anne. Thank you very much. And we'd love to know what you think. Do recent disturbing events in India echo that uncertain, dramatic and dangerous time after the end of the British Empire? And what about matchmaking? Is it an idea whose time has gone or an idea whose time might come again? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. Next week, our editor-in-chief, Zani Minton-Beddows, talks to Bill Gates about what it will take to defeat the coronavirus. And subscribers to The Economist could watch the full conversation from August the 18th at www.economist.com slash Bill Gates. If you're not yet a subscriber for this and many other riches, do go to economist.com slash podcast offer and you can sign up there. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.